Good evening, everybody. It's my great pleasure as Dean of the Faculty of Social and Historical Sciences to be able to welcome you to this inaugural lecture tonight. Uh, we have the great pleasure of Professor Charles Stewart from the Anthropology Department speaking to us on Foreign Anthropology of History, which I think is going to be an absolutely fascinating topic. Speaking personally, I'm particularly interested in hearing it as a historian who started life studying anthropology, so I'm really, really keen to hear what you have to say and your claims you're going to make today. Um, the order of the evening is as follows. We'll start with a brief introduction by one of Charles's colleagues, Ruth Mandel, um, who will introduce Charles and his work to you. Charles will then deliver his inaugural, and there will be a vote of thanks and commentary at the end from Professor Adam Cooper. Uh, after that, there is a reception to which everyone is very warmly welcomed. Um, you should really enjoy the reception. I gather it's going to be a very splendid spread. In any event, uh, as I say, welcome to UCL, and Ruth, I'll hand over to you to do the introduction to Charles. So, welcome to this version, the um, academic version of Durkheimian Collective Effervescence in honor and celebration of our friend, teacher, and colleague, Charles Stewart. <coughs> that so many of us are here today is fitting testimony to the long durée relationships that have emerged and been nurtured with Charles. I suspect that Charles asked me to be part of today's proceedings because he felt I could uh, shed a diachronic perspective given that we met in a pre-digital epoch probably around 1981 before many of you were born, no doubt. Thus, I will speak of both Charles's intellectual biography as well as the aleatory connections that we share. Having grown up in Cincinnati, Ohio, most of you probably don't know that, Charles fled east to Brandeis University in Boston and studied classics brilliantly. His academic prowess was recognized when he won the prestigious Watson Fellowship, allowing him to go to Greece for a year the natural consequence of his undergraduate thesis on the continuity of ancient Greek among a small group of Greek dialect speakers in southern Italy. Around this time, Charles's interest in classical Greek, philology, and linguistics began to expand into cultural arguments, and his interests shifted toward anthropology. His old Brandeis friend, Danny Hurwitz, now a professor at Ann Arbor, commented about that period. Charles and I shared a house in the 1970s while undergraduates. I was smoking dacha, scratching at the guitar, and pretending to understand Zen Buddhism while Charles was busy learning ancient Greek, studying independently at Harvard, and preparing to go off to the mountains of Italy. This set the template for his life of work between the anthropological study of belief, practice, and language. Rumor had it that he returned having fathered seven children, although more likely he returned per having produced one book. Later, he traveled to Naxos and seemed to have spent the entire time finding a place to sleep, although again, he miraculously managed to return with another book. And the books have been fascinating, humane, and wonderful ever since. En route to Greece back then, Charles stopped at UCL to meet Sally Humphreys, who held the first joint appointment in ancient history and anthropology. About 15 years later, Sally had retired and Charles moved into her job. Thus, during his first several years at UCL, we in anthropology shared him with the history department. 
After Greece, Charles spent a year at Oxford undergoing a disciplinary conversion from classicist to anthropologist. This led him to the University of Chicago, where we met. He was in the throes of decision, weighing the pros and cons of Chicago's PhD program against Oxford's. Our friend Danny, who knew I was studying modern Greek, brought us together. I was thrilled to meet Charles, hoping for a like-minded fellow student in a department that was a bastion of strongly primitivist anthropologists. At the time, anthropology of Europe was shunned. I tried my best to lure Charles to Chicago. I brought him to, along to my Greek class with Kostas Kazazis, an irrepressible linguist. Charles came with me to another course, co-taught by anthropologist Marshall Sollins and classicist James Redfield. A typically Chicago-style boundary-bending course designed synthetically to blend Salensian theory with classics, I suspected this was the sort of enlightened, interdisciplinary approach that would appeal to Charles. Jamie Redfield, a professor in classics, as well as that peculiar Chicago institution, the Committee on Social Thought, is the son of preeminent American anthropologist Robert Redfield, so was programmed both through nature and nurture toward anthropology. I assumed that these intellectual resources would have enticed him, but sadly it was not to be, and Charles returned to Oxford for his defil. Even so, he was smitten by what he had heard and seen in Chicago and kept in touch with Jamie throughout the years, and by happy coincidence, Jamie's here with us today. Special welcome to you. At Chicago, Charles also met a philosophy student, Yanis Manuelidis. At the time, ever precocious, Charles handed out personal cards to all he met. He gave one to Yanni, who was so moved by it that he kept it for over 30 years. Astonishingly, it did not get lost or misplaced as Yanni's moved from Chicago to Cambridge to the Greek Navy to Paris and finally to London. A, an evidence of the persistence of material culture. I was amazed last week when Yanni's showed it to me. Now, the reason Yanis was so moved was the blatant declaration of Philhellene in large Greek lettering at the top. Philhellene, or lover or admirer of Greek culture, has a rather charming historical inflection, recalling the exploits and works of Byron and Goethe. As Yanis put it, here was young Charles, and I was so taken by his card, a self-described proud Philhellene, someone my age, who not only had a card, no graduate students did then, but who labeled himself as loving the place and culture I, a foreigner, was from. It was incredible. Yanis and Charles lost touch, but about 15 years ago, I got them back together in London, having forgotten that they had met long ago. Now, Yanis and his family live around the corner from my family. His wife, Michelle, who grew up at the University of Chicago, practices Qigong with Charles' wife, Dina, and their sons have grown up together. Perhaps this is the moment to mention another connection. For individuals whose natal families are abroad, lacking the local kinship links and roots that supply support systems, grandparental babysitters, shared holidays, weekend family cottages, and the like, it's been a great deal more challenging to raise families. Thus, our three families, along with a couple of others, have bonded over the years as fictive kin as we observe rituals, celebrate holidays and festivals together with our children. For example, long ago, my then 18-month-old daughter gave Charles and Dina's eight-day-old son his first taste of wine. More recently, we all ate Thanksgiving turkey together along with Lakis. As a colleague, 
Charles is outstanding. Not only does he answer email and the phone, he does it promptly. He always makes time to read others' work, offering helpful comments. He's assumed heavy administrative responsibilities, many administrative duties over the years. He's a terrific teacher, and I know this since we co-taught together for several years. He has a legacy of PhD students, many of whom have divulged to me their feelings about him. Um, those are highly edited here, and here are some fragments of their encomia. Charles has been an extremely encouraging teacher, always supportive, both during but also after my PhD. His comments always move me toward new directions. He has this inner balance and patience which helps put things in perspective. His calm manner was a sedative for me when as a PhD student, I stressed in the face of seemingly insurmountable tasks of, excuse me, of ever completing. Another one told me, he takes you very seriously. He is always keen on guiding with incredible modesty, letting you develop your ideas even on things that he may have written about. He would never impose his own perspective on what you're trying to work on and would mildly intervene in a way that's always productive. What more can a student ask of a supervisor? Charles traces his supervisory technique to John Campbell, his own supervisor at Oxford, who by all accounts was a paragon of pedagogical talent. Another former student said, he seemed to know my field material better than I did. I remember how he once told me that he could write a whole article about a single line from one of my interviews. I was impressed. But the thing that struck most in my mind is that he ate a whole bag of gummy bears at one sitting. <laughs> and I know you're nervous about your lecture, Charles, and I've brought some for you to help, help you along. Moving now to Charles' scholarship. As a scholar, there's not much I can add to what a TLS reviewer wrote about his recent book. Brilliantly persuasive, extraordinary, gripping. How does one top that? For those of you who have not yet read his complete works, here's a digitally enhanced abridged summary of some of his important articles. This, these are word clouds um, taken from several of his articles. You can see the themes very easily. And for students, I don't recommend that you use these as cliff notes. <laughs> it's um, Michael Hertzfeld, an early mentor and friend, summed up Charles as a generous soul as well as a brilliant scholar an all-too-rare combination. I would like to add that there are few scholars who can get away with citing Aristotle's poetics, Claude Lévi-Strauss, and the great baseball player Jackie Robinson in the same sentence. Charles is one of them. And it's important to note that all this scholarly brilliance has been well acknowledged with numerous accolades. Charles has been the recipient of countless honors, including a British Academy Fellowship, as well as fellowships at the Getty and the National Humanities Center. But perhaps the jewel in his scholarly crown was being invited to deliver the series of Evans Prichard lectures at All Souls College, Oxford in 2010. When thinking about Charles, it's difficult to separate him from his life partner, Dina. 
They're perfectly suited, uncannily perceptive about and sensitive to each other. However, this match was not made in heaven, but rather partly at the AAA, the American Anthropology Association meetings in San Francisco in 1996, and partly on my computer. I take great satisfaction knowing that I helped connect them. It's too long a story for today, but it involves a roommate, a sister, a family resemblance, Charles' keen eye, and my acting as a go-between on email. The relationship took off when Charles visited Dina at Harvard where she had a postdoc. A whirlwind romance began and they never looked back. Now, 17 years later, with Adam, an aspiring tennis, running, and scrabble champion, they're a strong and loving family. Finally, a few fun facts you might not know about Charles. One, <coughs> he always hoped to work in India particularly, I believe, in pursuit of the geolinguistic epicenter of Indo-European. To this end, he even pursued Sanskrit for a couple of years. <coughs> he and Adam are fans of Cincinnati Bengals football team and were devastated when they were knocked out of the NFL playoff recently, meaning no Super Bowl Sunday to look forward to this weekend as respite from the pressures of your inaugural. You might not know that Charles' matrilineal line hails from Texas. <laughs> this meant that summers were punctuated by Gumbo and Galveston. Charles is one of six siblings and many more cousins. <clears throat> I'm just guessing, but I wonder if his choice of a solitary, scholarly life interrupted by periods of ultra-social fieldwork might be a reaction. <clears throat> When chatting with Charles a month or so ago about how he envisioned today's proceedings, he jokingly mentioned that he saw it as akin to his bar mitzvah, considering Charles' work on religion and ritual an unsurprising analogy. The stereotypical bar mitzvah boy after his speech thanks his great aunt for a fountain pen. In Charles' case, this is apt. He long has brandished his pen, literally and electronically, to inspiring ends. In a moment, we'll hear from him as he attempts to summarize his considerable oeuvre. And we can expect that his continued wielding of keyboard and pen will produce more wonders in the years to come. And with that, I give you Charles Stewart. Thank you. starts is that many people can't come today and those of you who are here might like to say something personal to him, personal slash public, um, and you may do that because of a departmental website. Um, on our website we set up a Facebook account where you can comment um, to Charles for public consumption too. Thank you. Okay, well, great to see everybody here. The moment has finally come. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, I think you can see why I asked Ruth to do this introduction for me. If, if somebody can introduce you to your wife, then uh, <laughs> introducing, introducing your inaugural is uh, like falling off a log. Um, I have, have, uh, they've been mentioned. I need to thank my wife, uh, Dina, and my son, Adam, uh, for su supporting me. Uh, it's not easy to live uh, with an academic, and uh, especially a dreaming academic, so much as I am. And, um, you know, if you, if, you, 
if you work in academia, it, work just spreads out to fit all available hours, and you really need understanding at home. And I'm just so grateful to you. I couldn't have done it without you. And then um, there are all of you. Um, I'm just overwhelmed, you know, to have so many different people from so many different phases and moments in my life here at this lecture. Um, I want to thank, first of all, uh, my parents and family. You heard a little bit about them. Um, they couldn't be here because they're in the United States. Uh, but I thank them for encouraging me to dream and aspire and um, make my way from Cincinnati to here. Um, my teachers, I thank. Um, my students, who I've learned an enormous amount from, many of whom are here. I can't begin to thank you all by name. So to all of you, I just want to say one big thank you. For all of your ideas, for your enriching personal engagement, all of that with me over the years. And I'm just really overwhelmed to see you all here tonight. I've got especially uh, former students, former undergraduate students from 15 years ago uh, in attendance, some of whom have traveled from as far away as Ireland to be here. So I'm just delighted. And finally, uh, of course, I'm honored very much to be, uh, you know, to be appointed now as a professor at UCL, a college whose founding principles I, I embrace. And I'd especially also like to acknowledge my department, uh, the justly renowned anthropology department, one of the finest anthropology departments in the world, not just my opinion, but I believe that's widely shared. And it's been a truly dynamic place to have as a base. So thank you all. What I want to do now is speak for about 45 minutes, which was what my brief was. So uh, that's what I want to do. And I want to speak in a way um, that hopefully everybody can understand. There's some seats right over here if you want, Paula. For an anthropology of history, then. The, an the anthropology of history calls for the anthropological analysis of the practice of history. It seeks to understand how various societies, including our own, understand the historical. How do they establish relationships with the past? This enterprise, which I aim to describe and recommend in this lecture, would involve the historical and the anthropological study of how people in the past made sense of their past, the ethnographic study of how people in contemporary world societies conceive the past, and the conceptual analysis of our own assumptions about what the past, time, and history signify. Over 50 years ago, Evans Pritchard called for the, quote, the study of historical knowledge as part of the content of social thought, unquote. Um, as part of a changing present. I would go beyond a sociology of historical knowledge, <clears throat> which I understand is the attempt to understand why historians find certain topics interesting in given periods, or when and why they feel the need to present new accounts of well-studied events. That would certainly be good. But to a large degree, it is already handled in the branch of history known as historiography. I would press further for a full ethnography of historical practice, 
on the model of science studies, such as those conducted by Latour and Wolgar and others, who've spent time observing science researchers in their labs in order to produce a more detailed account of how their knowledge is produced. So far as I'm aware, such studies have not been conducted in history departments, or for that matter, as far as I know, in any department in our faculty, uh, in any of the disciplines represented by the departments in our faculty. Now, being the type of person who puts the phone down immediately once he detects that a telephone survey is coming on, uh, I recommend this course of, course of action with considerable ambivalence. I'm not really sure I want my historian friends placed under surveillance by the progeny of Malinovsky. But at the same time, I would dearly like richer accounts of the professionalization of historians, just as we have had ethnographic accounts of medical schools and the process of becoming a doctor. In case it relieves anxiety any, it should be remembered that in the same breath as he recommended the sociological study of history, Evans Pritchard also recommended the sociology of anthropology. Social, social anthropologists have studied everything uh, from astronauts to zoos, but they've never studied themselves. So I'd like to think that we could collaborate, historians and the anthropologists, by encouraging each other. In any case, there's plenty of anthropology of history that can be done without doing the ethnography of contemporary historians. That, that would be just one plank in the anthropology of history program. So, in order to open this topic, I would like to say something about the image used to advertise this lecture, which you can see. It's presented on my title slide. This is a single square cell from a 16th century Tlaxcalan lienzo, or canvas, depicting Cortez's depicting Cortez's conquest of Mexico. This view of it uh, doesn't, probably doesn't come out so well in the back, but it indicates the larger context. My title image is just one of 91 squares in this early graphic history. It shows Cortez speaking with a Tlaxcalan noble He's speaking with a Tlaxcalan noble, and La Malinche is standing there in the foreground on the left. The most important thing to notice is the circular feathered battle standard in the center with four V-shaped golden rays emitting from it. This represents a sunrise, and it is a recognized central Mexican periodizing image. This composition, depicting events from 30 years earlier, conveys the message that the previous Tlaxcalan way of life is finished and a new phase has begun with the alliance to Cortez. Although in English we can easily conceptualize a new dawn or the dawning of a new age, the Tlaxcalan idea was more canonical and central to social thought. It meant that the strange suns which had shown over flawed customs in former times were now replaced, literally. On calendar stones found throughout central Mexico, the new sun was often depicted along with the former suns shunted to the margins of the composition and reduced in size. I would call this 
and indigenous historical representation. Indigenous in the sense of local in particular, but this is also, the, this term indigenous is also anthropological code for non-Western. That is, not produced in accord with the canons of Western historical practice, which, by the way, had not yet been consolidated in 1522, in 1552. One of the things people tend to know about history and anthropology is that Levi-Strauss once pronounced that there are hot and cold societies. It's really embarrassing nowadays to think about that, you know, we Westerners celebrating our, our hotness. <laughs> As Stefan Palmier, with whom I am collaborating uh, on a larger project in anthropology and history, the anthropology of history. Stefan Palmier trenchantly observed this little phrase has been one of the most misunderstood statements ever produced by anthropology. Levi-Strauss had to correct it at least two times and it still hasn't died. What he wanted to say is not that society is divided into historical and ahistorical by as, as a natural fact, but rather that all societies differ along a spectrum of possibilities in regards to the way in which they embrace history, the historical. Some of them suppress change, some of them celebrate change. And they, there's, there's any variety that you can find. The larger point that Levi-Strauss really opens with that statement, which turns out to be an interesting statement after all, an interesting turn of thought, is that cultural ideas about the key constituent features of history, ideas such as time or event, will vary from society to society and they modulate the understanding of what we might call history. There can be no history without culture, as Marshall Salins phrased it. The Tlaxcalans, with their first, sun, first sunrise, for example, had their own particular conception of change from old to a new order. Eric Hirsch and I have termed these cultural models historicities, as have a number of other people, such as Marshall Salins, uh, Michel Rolf Trouillot, and uh, Francois Artog, to name a few. We name them historicities to direct attention to the matter of how a people make sense of the past in a present while anticipating a future. The past cannot be comprehended without factoring in how it is inflected by the other time zones. And this is something I want to, to consider now with some ethnographic uh, examples. In the 1830s on the island of Naxos in Greece, where I have conducted long-term field research, people experienced dreams of the Virgin Mary, telling them where to dig to find an icon buried on a hillside. These dreams were consistent with the general expect expectation at the time that dreams revealed the future. After five years of intermittent digging, people unearthed four icons and some human bones along with them. In further dreams, the Virgin Mary told them how the icons had come to be in the mountainside and in yet further dreams and waking stories, the villagers expanded this information into a historical account it told of Egyptian Christians arriving on their shores over a millennium ago to escape persecution. The stories included details of these people's names and described their clothing. 
Local history, then, was instigated by predictive dreams that revealed a past. During the time this digging was going on, Greece was emerging from its war for independence from the Ottomans. The villagers had for some time earned their living as miners of the heavy stone, emery, which they sold on the market, and it was an excellent income stream for a remote mountain village. Now, at independence, the fledgling new state needed all the revenue it could lay hands on, plus ça change, and so it nationalized the mines, thereby reducing the villagers in that village where I worked to lowly paid wage laborers. Their dreams of icons and the discovery of these icons was a way of thinking themselves out of their straitened circumstances. The people thought that a, pros that a prosperous future was on the horizon because a monastery would be built on the site, attracting pilgrims who would spend money in the village. So this is, this is that large church, which was constructed during the period when I did field research over the last decade or so. And it's the future of that past. And it's also a future that hasn't really come into being yet. It's really, uh, the pilgrims haven't materialized and the fortunes of the village haven't changed. But it is, could almost be captioned, if you build it, then they will come. <laughs> the pattern of the past taking shape as people try to negotiate their present and immediate future may also be seen in post-socialist Mongolia, where ethnic Buryat people face anxiety about their livelihood under the new uncertainties of capitalism. They understand their present plight as visited upon them by vengeful origin spirits, whom they neglected during the socialist period when their shamanic practices were suppressed. In order to improve their fortune in the present, they must find and propitiate these spirits by commissioning shamanic seances. The problem is that since socialism so disrupted the practice of shamanism, it is hard to trust those people presenting themselves as shamans. Fake shamans apparently abound in Mongolia in the present. This causes people to resort to multiple shamans in order to better their chances of success. Since propitiating an ancestral spirit involves reciting information about that ancestor's death and circumstances of burial, the multiplication of shamanic seances produces a plethora of historical information, which the people take and compare and even cross-check with written genealogical records. Lack of historical knowledge, the disruption of socialism, was at the root of their present misfortune, and this has been remedied, or is being remedied, by resort to shamans, who have become living nodes of historical consciousness, according to one ethnographer. As my colleague here in the department at UCL, Rebecca Empson reports in her fascinating monograph about Buryat people living on the border of Mongolia and, and Russia, shamans have also made contact with deep historical figures in the landscape, stretching back even to Genghis Khan, thereby furnishing legitimating histories for themselves and the state. Awareness of the intricate linkages between past, present, and future guides the ethnographic study of historicities 
as they take shape in social settings. It also means that we may not always have been looking for histories in the right place. Studies of divination, for example, and shamanism, as we've just seen, or dreaming, as we've also now seen, might open windows onto indigenous historicities. Uh, the great historian Carlo Ginzburg, in fact, made the argument that um, divination, including dream divination, in antiquity, Mesopotamian antiquity, mapped out the first procedures for making inferences from evidence, and these were later applied to study the past. In other words, uh, the historical method was inherited from divination. The ethnography of history will require inventive project design and intuition on the part of researchers as to when and how the past is being represented. The idea of historicity gives the anthropology of history a new measuring stick for the historical. Years ago, anthropology, anthropology took what is called the historic turn. It went from a predominantly synchronic approach to societies to recognizing the need for historical perspective. Eric Wolf's book uh, from 1982, Europe and the People Without History, would be a landmark uh, for that move. For the most part, however, this initiative gave rise to colonial and post-colonial historical studies <coughs> where anthropologists placed peripheral societies within our framework. We gave them history according to our historical reasoning. And often, we gave it to them as in, insofar as it was tied in with our history, our own story of contact with them. Just how these people themselves conceived and represented the past was less often studied. Uh, one good exception is my emeritus former colleague, uh, Buck Shefflin, who I saw here earlier, who had a, an early article studying just this point of how his particular people in Papua New Guinea understand themselves uh, the past in their local terms, which turned out to be not an idea of cause and effect and, and linear, um, uh, a linear logic of causation, but rather a social idea of reciprocity. For the anthropology of history, standard Western historical practice is to be understood as a historicity. Western historiography may be the most globally pervasive and dominant historicity in the entire world at the moment, but in principle, it is but one particular culturally organized system. In Konstantin Fasold's account, it arose as the power of the papacy and monarchies of the Holy Roman Empire lost force. By the 17th century, people began to assert the possibility of a different future. In the process of creating a new present and future, as we would predict by now, they change their understanding of the past. The past, in order to, be, to have any freedom of change in the present, the past also had to be restructured. The past was to be conceived as separated from the present and different from it. A notion of human individuality, free will, choice, and change came gradually to be the subjects of historical study as well as personal assumptions about life. Fasolt went on even bolder uh, in a later article to cast the practice of history as a ritual reaffirmation of human liberty, constantly repeated to remind us of our innermost values of individual autonomy. 
that not everybody agrees with Konstantin Fasol, but there are many other competing and similar versions of the formation of Western, modern Western history as we know it. I'm not trying to tell you that this is the only one, but my point is that Western history took shape in a particular cultural moment, in a particular cultural time, and on those grounds, it's, it's not any different from any other historicity. It's not a transcendental uh, tool that was always there and was discovered in nature. Uh, our historicity arose in contrast to other assumptions about the working of history which predated it, such as divine providence or static custom, both of which kept people in their place, not expecting arrangements to change, at least not by their own agency. By the early 19th century, history in the West had come to be practiced according to well-recognized well protocols, among which are the following. Uh, there must be evidence to back up assertions. Evidence should be in the public domain. Reconstruction of the past should be plausible. The historian must treat the past on its own terms and avoid anachronism. And this last stricture rooted down in the most commonplace assumption of all, that the past is past and separated from the present, which is, in turn, separate from the future. This aggregate of strictures, this methodology, is conventionally called historicism, and it is the West's predominant historicity. Uh, my, this is my sense of historicism. It's shared by quite a few people, but there's a lot of confusion around the term historicism. It's definitely not, it's, it's definitely an idea of history is also be, is being random. Anything could happen. So it's very much not Karl Popper's historicism. When anthropology made its historic turn, it took this historicism, which I've just described, it took it off the shelf of Western uh, common assumption and used it to historicize other societies. We've just taken a brief look at the cultural assumptions aligning, uh, underlying historicism as a regime of historicity. And the goal of the anthropology of history is to uncover and understand many more regimes of historicity in and outside the West. And I'll come back later in this talk to what, you know, questions that might be arising for you about, well, does this undermine the status of our history? For the moment, I want to press on to the question that also immediately arises from the considerations so far. Namely, how does one define history so as to do the anthropology of it without re-importing Western historicism as the framework through which all other past relationships are viewed? My suggestion is that we begin with a simple, a simpler heuristic definition of history as, the represent, as representations of the past and also intimations of the past, since the past may, may be perceived non-objectively or sensed affectively, even though it's later given representation, the experiential moment of history is relevant. Western historicism generally expresses itself in writing, hence the term historiography, which is often conflated with history itself. By contrast, on the Greek island of Kalimnos, history is evoked by the detonation of fireworks, as David Sutton argued. Elsewhere, it may be invoked in food preparation or eating, in works of art, in music, through funeral laments or dance, 
A good example of this latter, this last one, would be the Alevi ritual of Jem, in which participants light 12 candles for the 12 martyrs or imams of their faith. Then they douse the candles and begin begin to weep as they immerse themselves in the thought of painful events, recent and distant, in an act of analogical compression, where the present, near past, and remote past are fused. I have to thank Ruth Mandel, who not only does great introductions, but this is from her field research. So um, far more than just an introducer, uh, Ruth is an amazing colleague as well, has given me great ideas, this being uh, one of the connections. The gem includes music and trance-inducing dance, and I took this picture to capture that, what we called, Ruth and I called the passion of the dance, um, which people commune with their history, embodying it and bringing it to life. They do so underneath the gaze of pictures, quite commonly in their places of assembly. These are images of Ataturk, Haji Bektash, 13th century mystic, and Ali, the son-in-law of Muhammad. So historical punctuation marks in the 20th century, the the, um, 13th century, and the 7th century, prominently hanging on the wall as a kind of image-guiding device to prompt people to sink into the thought of their history and sink into their history as suffering and in a state of suffering, in an experience of suffering while dancing. The anthropology of history requires new vocabulary since historiography is so often inapplicable, totally inapplicable to a case like this. Terms inapplicable also to the, that Flax, Kala, and Lienzo, uh, to a large degree, in, inapplicable to the graphic uh, history. Terms such as historicization, historification, and historical poesis come into usage to capture productions, representations of the past that do not necessarily take shape through conscious, rational reflection or receive expression in writing. These various historicities, with their particularly particular structuring principles, such as providence, genealogy, reciprocity, or suffering, just to name the ones we've already encountered in examples, and their plethora of forms have heretofore been generically classified as, well, shamanism, dreaming, dancing, and so on, or as myth, legend, religion, ritual, or fundamentally erroneous. There's been some uncertainty, both amongst anthropologists and historians, as to whether non-historicist historicities can produce representations of the past that we are comfortable calling histories. Non-Western societies may not have historicist history, but does that mean that they lack history? Clearly, other historicities, such as Christian providence, mediated the production of histories before historicism in the pre-Renaissance West. Our history has a prehistory that is also regularly viewed as history. My sense is that archaeologists may be at the forefront of studying these non-historicist histories um, because they do not necessarily begin with written. 
with the, the written. And they have also advanced the study of what they call indigenous archaeologies. That is, the ideas people living in the vicinity of archaeological sites have about those sites and the artifacts and monuments found there. Archaeologists have become interested not just in applying our historical models to the material past, but listening to local ones as well. A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to be uh, involved on an archaeological ethnography on the island of Poros, led by Yanis Hamilakis, who's right here with us this evening. The challenge for historians and archaeologists is how much evidence they might be able to find to establish indigenous opinions about the past in the past, in, in the distant past. Adrian Mayer's study of what ancient Greeks thought about the fossils they found suggests that there is potential. I move on now to um, consider clashing hist historicisms. Clashing historicities, rather. Standard historicism, as I mentioned, <coughs> has generally rejected other historicities as substandard or wrong. We've considered this conceptually, but it is interesting to see how it works out in practice. Marshall Salins tells the story of how the Maori repeatedly tore down the flagpole erected by the British during the Maori revolt in the 1840s. The British, who were trying to forge an alliance with the Maori chiefs that would effectively give them sovereignty over New Zealand, could not understand why the Maori did not destroy the Union Jack. Um, which was flying on the flagpole, which for them was the very symbol of sovereignty. Salins explains that for the Maori, the future is behind one. Everything that happens in the present is an analogical reoccurrence of an earlier cosmological event. In Maori cosmology, in the beginning, the sky was collapsed onto the earth, and it took a hero to come along and prize the sky off the earth and he planted poles to hold it in place. This event was the originary event which the ancestor, by which the ancestors claimed possession of the land. The British flagpole was seen as replicating this cosmic event and claiming ownership of the land. Hence, that flagpole had to be knocked down over and over again as many times as the British put it up. A British historicity of progressive, future-orientated colonial expansion crossed swords with a historicity emphasizing the eternal return of the past. They diverged fundamentally over the identification and significance of, of the event here at the heart of the flagpole affair. Something similar happened on the island of Naxos, um, where um, after independence in 1832, uh, a German government, a Bavarian government was imposed on Greece, came to Greece, and they, was, they sought to cultivate a much less mystical uh, form of uh, Christianity in the, in the country they were ruling. There was a, a Bavarian king. This government confiscated the, the icons that I mentioned earlier the villagers discovered. So they discovered their four icons, opening their future, but then the government confiscated them. And they accused the charismatic dreamers of charlatanry and took them to court. The villagers... Christian-infused archaeological practice was delegitimated in Greece by new laws against the excavation of artifacts without a permit. Objects in the ground during the period when they were digging practically 
were reconfigured as part of an objectified past, an objectified past past, highly valued as patrimony and placed under protection in line with historicist ideas. For the villagers, however, the icons were part of a continuous liturgical present in an orthodox Christian temporality where figures from the past, such as the saints, portrayed on the icons, can be in the home, can be touched, kissed, and treated virtually as family members. In the time remaining now, I want to consider more closely what the development of an anthropology of history might mean for Western thought about history. Historicism, with its insistence on evidence and rational argument, is the best methodology that Western scholarly thought has been able to devise thus far for the study of history, and it is socially diffused and consistent with modern thought. As the sociologist of knowledge, Karl Mannheim, put it, as he concluded, basically, in 1924, quote, historicism is a worldview that determines our forms of thought, unquote. It is hard for us to think outside it, and this makes recognizing and understanding other cultural approaches to history a major challenge. We must recognize the framing power of our initial, of our intuitive suppositions, our ethnocentrism, and suspend judgment to understand these other systems. This operation places our own historicism in a broader context of cultural possibilities and gives us a valuable vantage point on our own practice of history. This anthropological recognition and respect for cultural difference, which reflexively includes our own practices as one among many possible forms, that was the best I thought we could offer, was the best I thought I could do. Then I read an article by Dipesh Chakrabarti. I had my Chakrabarti moment. It was an article which formed part of his larger project uh, published in, in the book there, uh, Provincializing Europe. In, in a central example, which is well known, Chakrabarti considered the rebellion of an Indian tribal group, the Santal, in 1855. The Santal leaders stated that their god, Thakur, urged them to rebel and strengthened them in battle. <coughs> what Chakrabarti then asks, essentially, is this. Why can't the Western historian invoke the supernatural to explain an event? Why can't we just lift that out and put that into our account? The way, why can't we tell history and have it make sense the way Santal could tell that history. The short answer is that such a perspective violates the current paradigm of historicism. Thucydides eliminated the gods from history once, and the Enlightenment architects of modern historiography did so again. This is now the way things have been set up. Swimming against the current, however, Chakrabarti makes a plea for studies of subaltern histories that would subvert standard historiography, decolonizing thought on both sides. To my surprise, he went on to assert that the anthropological approach would not be of any help in this enterprise. Uh, why did he say that? Uh, because it takes, because in his version, 
it takes, anthropology takes alien historicities and it anthropologizes them, which means it turns them into beliefs, which implicitly we don't hold. This anthropologization effectively sanitizes alien points of view and renders them, renders them safe for incorporation into our historical narratives. So the historian can say the Santals believed that the god Thakur helped them. Chakrabarti portrays this as a sort of gentleman's agreement. And I quote how he phrases it. I respect your beliefs, but they're not mine, unquote. So while I, I don't for a moment accept his characterization of the anthropological enterprise, because all I, as far as I can see, all, anth all social anthropologists do is try harder and harder to capture um, indigenous ways of life and points of view as immediately and as evocatively as possible. But I realized the importance of his larger challenge, which forces us to think about the potential difference that an anthropology of history might make. Can we learn from the, can we learn from the other? Uh, should we? Must we? Uh, how might learning about other societies place our own analytical ideas and assumptions at risk and open them to change? In considering these questions, discussions with my colleague uh, Martin Holbrad <laughs> have been hugely stimulating. Martin has put forward an idea of recursivity in his research on Cuban divination, making the case that the anthropological job is not completed until we have performed the operation of incorporating ideas found through fieldwork into our own analytical repertoire. This is a de facto decolonization of thought that does away with the gentleman's agreement to hold the other as an object of our thought rather than as part of it. Martin and I have debated how such a move might affect knowledge more generally outside narrow subdisciplinary uh, forums. The idea of, in his work, the idea of truth in the heartland of the West is unlikely to be shifted by the presentation of information that Cuban diviners have a different conception, <coughs> conception of truth. Nor is Western historicism likely to change because history is practiced differently elsewhere. Martin and I might sell a few books recommending infinition or, or histor historification to specialists, but can we affect broader changes in thought? Things don't really work that way. In my view, historicism will change when it does, and perhaps it already is changing, for the very reasons recognized in its own principles, namely that the future is usually different from the present. It will change in relation to changing geopolitics, such as the rise of Asian societies as global superpowers and producers of knowledge, as well as in relation to internal social changes. The increased leverage of non-Western minorities living in Western countries, for example, might disturb the status quo via the power granted them through democratic, legal enfranchisement. And I come to my last major example. Take NAGPRA, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. 
NAGPRA provides Native American groups the right to reclaim and bury the remains of their ancestors when graves or bodies are found on federal or tribal land. Consider recent events in the economically depressed city of Port Angeles, Washington. Well, it, it shows you that it's near Seattle on this incredible uh, sound and system, waterway and system of islands. Um, Port Angeles, and there's a pic of the, of the city. This city was recently chosen as the site for a new dry dock where there would be an industrial harbor to build pontoons for bridges that were going to be put up in the um, Seattle area. And for many residents whose local main industry had been uh, a lumber mill, had just been shut down, and they were falling on hard times. The erection of this dry dock was going to be a salvation. It's going to bring hundreds of jobs to the area. Uh, construction workers, however, soon after they began uh, laying foundations and do doing the preparation work, unearthed the remains of a 2,700-year-old Coast Salish uh, Indian community containing some 300 graves. Native American leaders exercised their federal right to recover and bury the remains, since this was on, and it was in this area around here. This was recognized tribal land. During the process of excavating, many Native Americans uh, participated as, as um, on the dig as, as excavators working for the archaeologists, as archaeologists. As they were digging, um, um, the um, Sorry, I've lost my place for soon. Um, as they were digging, they were visited by their ancestors, uh, what we would call ghosts. And this instigated a rehistoricization of the landscape as Native American domain, uh, it, it rehistoricized the landscape as Native American land rather than as exploitable civic American real estate. Ultimately, the industrial harbor was moved to Tacoma. The, Port Angeles lost the harbor. And the 300 graves were reinterred in Port Angeles Harbor, which is now under redevelopment as an archaeological site and museum. In this example, the legal system of the dominant culture, dominant state, ruled against its own rationalist historicity. For disgruntled townspeople, ghosts and ancestors stood in the way of progress. The Port Angeles case shows that other, has other historicities may not be disregarded the way they used to be, as in the Maori case. Can you imagine uh, the Maori today erecting poles and reclaiming parts of New Zealand, or having the laws to allow them to do so? The emergence of new technologies, such as digital platforms for stimulating and interacting with the past, and social trends, such as historical reenactment, and the cresting popularity of historical fiction, historical film, TV documentaries, and infotainment have fed the reemergence of alternative historicities in the West and eroded some of the bedrock from under standard historicism. Perhaps we are witnessing the creation of a hybrid historicism in our times. Video games such as JFK Reloaded or Brothers in Arms Road to Hill 30 
Immerse players in pasts where they make decisions in real time. The Robin Island video game, currently under development by the Serious Games Institute in Coventry, enables students to visit the island virtually and interactively to approximate the experience that Mandela may have had. The written mediation of history and the framing of the past as an object located in a different time frame from the historian are being replaced by direct, visual, sensory engagement with the past, an, af an active, affective mode of historicization. As Anne Rigney has pointed out, internet search engine and web-generated pathways are replacing the logic of narrative connection in popular historical thought. Since depending on how many times people have searched something is what you're going to find, not um, narrative thought processes necessarily. So I was fascinated by the recent dispute over the school history curriculum. We've been watching uh, more Blackadder at home, I can tell you. you. You just knew this was coming, didn't you? What, what, but what interested me the most were some issues debated when the new curriculum was first unveiled early last year. The reformers considered that the 1970s introduction of child-centered learning was one of the reasons why people were not completing school with an adequate history education. Child-centered learning involves, among other things, experiential exercises such as imagining you're a soldier in the trenches of World War I, or standing packed tightly together to experience what conditions were like on a slave ship making the Atlantic crossing. The reformers want to curtail this type of learning in favor of a better understanding of chronology, key political figures, and major events. History teaching becomes improbably reduced to boot camp for an orthodox historicism that most historians I know would reject. From the perspective of the anthropology of history, this is a, agreement, this is a disagreement between a restrictive version of historicism and other versions of historicism. This is a civil war within historicism. <coughs> Those on the side of child-centered learning, however, stand on a continuum with practices of experiential and affective historical practice on the other side of the boundary of historicism. Indeed, some of those on the farther end of the continuum are very definitely at odds with historiography. Historical reenactors in the USA told researchers that history books are not for them authenticating reference points. It is rather the personal experience of the past during reenactments that makes history meaningful. Proof by reference to external evidence is for them secondary to personal experiential witnessing. The advent of popular visual and digital technologies did not create experiential modes of accessing the past. They have rather, they've always been there. And the experiential approach to history has always been there. What these new media have done have rather remediated this type of past relationship and given it new vitality. In conclusion, we can study other historicities not as examples of beliefs and bodies of thought that we implicitly consider to be wrong, but rather 
as variations of what people in the West also do, or might do, or as the case now uh, appears to be, as they actually are trying to do more and more of. Engineering the importation of foreign historicities into our own historicism would create neither parity nor comprehension. A real anthropologization of history does not just have peripheral others as objects. It would place our own practices within the same frame so that we can understand the variety of global historicities in terms of one another. This is what I've called for in this lecture, beginning with the call for the ethnography of professional history. I hope that idea does not sound as odd now as it might have done 40 minutes ago. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure to be able to, on behalf of all of us, I'm sure, thank Charles for a very fascinating, fascinating talk. Um, it brought back a lot of personal history and memories as well, as you can imagine. Um, when I was teaching at University College in the Anthropology Department in the early 1970s, uh, a great uh, historian of the ancient world, Arnaldo Mamliano, was professor of ancient history here. And he uh, persuaded the anthropology department to launch a joint degree in um, anthropology and ancient history. And he sent one of his most brilliant colleagues, <laughs> Sally Humphreys, to do what was then the diploma, postgraduate diploma in social anthropology. Now, another Mamiano's idea was that there was a long history of anthropological engagement with ancient Greece and the classical world, going back to Sir James George Fraser and William Robertson Smith and so on. But that anthropology had changed. It was a different paradigm. And the new modern anthropology, whatever that was, might have something particular to say about the ancient world. And Sally Humphreys was sent along to do that, and, and she did that very, very well. And what Charles has done, I think, is, in a way, the reverse of that. Rather than putting some school of modern anthropology to work in understanding the ancient world, Charles is rather doing ethnography of the modern Mediterranean world and looking for the ways in which history including quite ancient history, reappears in the ethnography. And in his first major book uh, on demons, he traces the history of particular beliefs, beliefs in demonic forms, and their transformation, but in a continuum from the classical Greek sources through the Greek Orthodox, the Byzantine, even the Ottoman, to the modern, and shows a continuity, a series of transformations of very ancient beliefs, still active, still very much um, present in, in, in modern lives. 
But he now, I think, is asking a more, um, I won't say more interesting, but certainly a broader kind of question, which is, what are the mechanisms by which histories are remembered, I suppose, the wrong word, constructed, made, made present in, in the world, made meaningful, made important for people? And I think he's beginning to show us in his own work and by the work he cites and by a lot of the work that he's encouraged and inspired, the, the very various ways in which this process happens, the various ways in which history becomes uh, meaningful, is evoked, is dreamt, among other things. And it's one of the most remarkable uh, findings of his uh, last book on, on, on dreams is the way in which dreams not only forecast the future, but in a way recall the past, remake the past, reinvent the past, and re-legitimate uh, the past in these Mediterranean um, societies. So he teaches us to look for these historicities, these ways of making history, these ways of creating history in unexpected places in very different genres, in very, very different forms. He quoted Levi-Strauss on Cold and Hot Society. I think it would be interesting to hear what he had to say about Levi-Strauss's distinction between history and myth, the argument about history and myth. And Levi-Strauss's comment, echoed, of course, by Edmund Leach, that all history in the real world is myth. Of course, there are a few historians locked away doing some kind of objective scientific history, but that doesn't penetrate the arguments and the consciousness of actors in the world. And uh, in opposition to Jean-Paul Sartre, who of course attacked Levi-Strauss for lacking a sense of historical progress, he said that the French Revolution functions as a myth for French intellectuals, and in particular, in this case, um, for, uh, for Sartre. Charles, again, I think, is beginning to turn this now well-worn argument upside down and to suggest not that all history in the real world is myth, but that all myth is history. That myth works in the same way as other kinds of historical <coughs> thinking, historical action in particular. He made me think, even more, I've read his stuff and it makes me think, but even in this talk today, again, made me think about the ways in which different historicities appear. And uh, I found myself looking not so much at his pictures, but at this thing of Baba. My, my, my Hebrew is, is, is um, not very good anymore, but probably some people can help me out of this, but I think the translation is not very good. I'm not sure what that word is. It Keno? 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 Keno Shanot Dorvador. So, remember, it's not really the days of old, is it? The days of? The days of? Well, yes, it's something different from the days of old. It's some, the days of eternity, something like that. Yes. Okay. 
Thank you. The days of the world. The days of the world. I think that's a very good comment that it's both time and space. Now, Kenor is consider that's not not very good, is it? It's translated as consider. Yes. Like that use of Hollande's translation process. Yes. Either it's all time, eternity, or time. Yes. Okay. Thanks. Shall not do the years of generation after generation, something like that. Now, what is that telling us that we should be doing? Why should we be doing that? If in Hebrew we assume that it's some kind of religious saying, but if it was a religious saying, this godless institution on Gower Street would hardly put it up there for everybody, all students, to be, to be brainwashed. What kinds of historicity are being embedded in that. The other thing it made me think about was Charles has told me if you want in terms of historicity what is the most common form the most common genre of historicity in contemporary Western society and I think it's obviously family history and if you start thinking about why there is this sudden huge popular movement of family history. What is it about? What is it doing? What is it recorded? What role does it play in present? One's asking, is it history? What kind of rules of evidence, what kind of rules of re relevance um, are, are, are practiced here? What are the rules of exclusion and, and inclusion? I think one begins to get some sense of the sorts of projects that Charles's talk, Charles's writing, will I think inevitably stimulate, and also why the family rather than the official histories, which are all, of course, about the state. Charles didn't mention another of his large projects, which um, I think is very, very interesting one related to this, which is uh, an anthropology of psychology which works in a very similar way, which asks the question of what kinds of psychologies are there out there, not only in our society, but in other societies? How are they constructed? What are they about? What sort of stories do they tell? What sort of theories do they tell? So this is a highly intellectual, very sophisticated, very reflexive, very thought-provoking anthropology. I'm sure we will enjoy the talk and we look forward to more from you. So I'd like to thank all three of our speakers very, very much. It's been an absolutely fascinating intellectual feast. Not least, of course, the centre point, Charles's talk, which was absolutely amazing. But I think also we've been... It's been marvellous to have Ruth and Adam giving us those particularly rich and thought-provoking introduction and vote of thanks. So let me now just remind you again, Grant Museum of Zoology for the reception. And thank you for coming.